0: Hello, and welcome to our fourth episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. Our guest this week is Grover Norquist, one of the geopolitics
1: fellows for spring 2017, but also the president of Americans for Tax Reform.
0: We are back in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, the, the warm weather was nice for a week. It's uh, cold, Aaron. It's, I'm a creature it's so of the cold. cold. I'm a creature of the cold, so I, I won't lie. I kind of appreciate being back uh, where it's a little chillier versus uh, a place where I got Crazy sunburned. If I can't
0: wear shorts and a t-shirt, it's too cold outside. That's my number one rule. DC is cold. I am not happy with all the snow on the ground. I would like to be back at the beach. But bottom line,
1: we're happy to be back with you dropping another episode uh, on this wonderful Friday morning. And we want to know what you did on your spring break. Where did you listen to our pod? I know a lot of our friends texted us saying we downloaded it for the the plane ride, which is awesome. But if you listen to it on a beach by the pool, uh, tweet at us
0: at Fly on the Wall Pod. We're on Twitter a lot, guys. We love Twitter. We're all over Twitter. Uh, also, find our podcast on iTunes if you guys don't know. Yeah, we're also on Google Play. So shout out to our, our
1: amazing uh, managing uh, director Justin McCartney for getting us on all those awesome platforms.
0: Yeah, and uh, speaking of awesome platforms, let's Ooh. talk a little bit about Twitter. Segway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be introducing this new uh, this new feature on Fly on the Wall pod
0: called Tweet of the Week. Aaron, are you even a millennial? (laughs) Some days I just don't know. The Tweet of the Week is really going to be about the most influential tweet um, that we saw in politics this week, and Twitter is surprisingly driven quite a bit by uh, politics.
1: Yeah, I think this is a good area for us to bring out, you know, not necessarily the, the most biting partisan retort or, or anything that shows a particular viewpoint. We just want to show, you know, how did Twitter drive, you know, the, the narratives that were created in politics this week? So in the spirit of that, uh, I think we found the perfect tweet to sort of wrap up this past week that we had.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the tweet of the week comes from at Maddo. Uh, that is Rachel Maddo's um, Twitter. She is on MSNBC at the nine o'clock hour. Um, she has a very well watched um, uh, primetime TV show, and the tweet reads, uh, in quotes, breaking all caps. We've got Trump tax returns tonight, 9 p.m. ET, MSNBC. New paragraph. In parentheses, seriously. Period.
1: Because um, that period really conveys the seriousness. Yeah, so. uh,
0: yeah. It really got to the seriousness of the tweet. Um, this was at about 4:30. Her show goes on at nine. Um, everyone then proceeded to go wild. It was, it was a buzz, both in real life and. Uh, on the the virtual world as well. Yeah, everyone was freaking out. Uh, people didn't totally know. I think the funniest part of this tweet, though, was that people didn't know what she meant by Trump tax returns because she didn't say President Trump. She didn't say Donald Trump. <laughs> she just said Trump tax <laughs> returns. And uh, everyone was wondering, wait, is this Donald Trump? Is this, you know, Ivanka? Was, yeah, there's a lot of options there. Yeah, uh, she was very vague in it. Um, she ended up clarifying in a later tweet because everyone was freaking out. Um, And then, really, her story didn't go too, too far. Um, There's a theory out there um, that the person who actually leaked these tax returns was the president himself. We're not promoting any, you know, conspiracy theories on this podcast. We're not going to promote any, let's say, fake news. But basically, uh, you know, the tax returns came out. Um, It didn't really say much. In fact, he probably paid more taxes than most of the Americans would have guessed. Um, you know, he made about 150 million dollars, which is more money than I'll see in my lifetime. Um, and paid about 38 million in taxes. Uh, percentage wise, it's not terrible. Um, that's about what you'd expect,
1: uh, yeah. And I think that plays into the larger narrative of the week, which also segue has been driven by financials. Wow, the, we really need like a cool, like, uh, music segue in that, it's like some sort of cool sound effect. But yeah, the budget uh, from President Trump came out. Now, this is not to get confused with the line item budget that will probably get introduced in May and then passed eventually in October, uh, ideally. By Congress. By Congress. But this is the broad strokes priorities list that President Trump uh, released and and publicized to the American people. Now, on this, we see um, departments, their, their funding going up and down. We see President Trump capitalizing or shying away from some of the campaign promises uh, that he made on the trail. It really gives us an idea of the way in which President Trump intends to govern and the way in which he views uh, the array of responsibilities or tasks of the federal government and what really needs funding and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, our listeners shouldn't be too, too confused here. This is not uh, a budget that gets implemented immediately. Um, you know, the president does ha- doesn't have that much power, Um But it is a very good way to see and understand where the president is going with his next um, three and a half years. It's very interesting to see the
1: trends and what's going up and what's going down. uh, Because I think it also speaks to the role of, another awesome segue, interest groups. Mm -hmm. Which is going to be the main topic of this podcast when we bring in uh, Grover Norquist, our our wonderful guest for this week. We get to see, you know, all the conservative uh, political action organizations. Uh, that you know were pushing for more restrictive uh, fiscal policies uh, had some success with mm-hmm. what President Trump released, and I think it's very interesting to take a look at you know their role in sort of pushing for this uh, style of governance.
0: Yeah, I mean budgets are at their core a battle between different people and different groups, uh, whether they be bureaucracies within the federal government or interest groups outside of the federal government, and interest groups obviously are you know. Groups of people who organize themselves based off of a very specific um, agenda that they want to pass, you know, a very singular interest um, that they would like to see implemented in the United States government. They're not elected officials. Um, They're just people that organize themselves uh, as such to, you know, get their ideas through and make sure that, um, you know, their interests are best represented in Congress. And these groups have crazy
1: amounts of power. I, when you think about it, they, they have ways of influencing elections. They have ways of influencing, um, the way that politicians govern that they're very big players in this political ecosystem we have here in Washington.
0: Yeah. And, and interestingly enough to, again, they're not elected. I mean, they're just people like you <laughs> listeners who decided that they were going to organize themselves as such, um, so that they could be successful, and I think that's a very interesting uh, ethical conversation that we have um, about their role in government. I mean, they're um, in a lot of ways uh, like their own political parties, but again, they're not—they're not elected whatsoever. So I think it's very interesting to see um, very ordinary people like you guys and like us who just organize themselves in such a way um, that they are getting huge, huge amounts of power um, and influence from some of the most powerful people um, in the country. So
1: much clout, yeah, and. I think the organization and the person who who most exemplifies this is our guest, Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist is currently uh, the president of Americans for Tax Reform and has been for quite some time. And through this organization, we've seen him on the right side of the political spectrum hold elected officials to a promise of never to raise uh, net taxes. So basically never to overspend or never to live without uh, outside the means of the federal government and steadily trying to reduce the tax burden on the American people. Uh, and just a little bit of background on this. Uh, in 1985, President Reagan actually asked uh, Grover to start what's now known as the Americans for Tax Reform Organization. And this is an organization that he, uh, that, um, he meaning President Reagan, actually envisioned uh, being used to help convince American voters uh, that it was time for tax reform in 1986. It was one of the big deliverables that President Reagan uh, had campaigned on and wanted to implement. Uh, So he sort of needed to rally people behind this cause and get other elected officials behind this cause as well. So he tapped Grover. And Grover came up with this idea called the Taxpayer Protection Pledge. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Christian?
0: Yeah, so the Taxpayer Protection Pledge is pretty simple. I mean, it's a piece of paper um, that Grover goes around to all members of Congress and says... Um, look, when you get elected, you will not raise taxes on your constituents. It's it's that simple. I mean, it's like a couple of lines. Um, and the point of it is he gets um, some of the most powerful people um, in the nation, the people who make these decisions, um, down on paper, making sure that um, the people he represents, which is the American people, uh, Grover, um, making sure that taxes are not raised for them. You know, that's his interest at the end of the day, is he does not believe um, that taxes should ever be raised on Americans. Um, so, you know, the pledge is just a wave to make sure that um, congressmen and senators and presidents don't do so. And Grover has been doing this for, you know, quite a long time, and he has been incredibly successful in doing so. It's amazing.
1: As of November 2012, 95 percent of Republican members of Congress in all put one
0: of the Republican nominees uh, for president in that election cycle had signed this pledge yeah i mean it's pretty simple you sign this pledge you get elected if you don't sign this pledge it's essentially a litmus test and you will not be elected
1: essentially on the right side of the aisle that's that's what it comes down to so amazingly we've seen grover take over this very clearly singular focus interest group and turn
0: into a big power player and it is fascinating to see how he has amassed this much power again just being one man one guy with an institution behind him
1: yeah i think it raises so many questions you know how do you go about doing this how do you get these things done you know what christian i would give anything to be a fly on the wall when he goes into paul ryan's office and says you need to sign this pledge
0: if only grover was here to talk about it. let's go do it guys stay tuned
1: Yeah, I have to say, you were one of the people we were most excited for when we first found out we were going to run this podcast. Uh, just because we, we heard you have this amazing sense of humor, especially from oh, your, your student okay. strategy group. Uh, so shout out to Alex Coopersmith, one of our good friends, uh, who says he just loves hearing you, you uh, make your wisecracks. So.
0: I have heard you do stand-up. Confirm or deny?
2: Oh, I do, yes, yes. <laughs> I performed at the Improv in D.C., at Burning Man mm-hmm. and at the Comedy Store in LA. Oh, very nice. That's very amazing.
0: Nice. Maybe maybe on a different podcast you can come back and just do comedy <laughs> Look for us. You can
2: find a podcast with Polly Shore, the comedian and I. It's Polly Shore's podcast, okay. where um, we talk politics, but mm-hmm. we also uh, do a little of my comedy routine. I get a little critique. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, Perfect. Well, if Perfect.
1: you ever want to test drive any new jokes with oh, the Georgetown okay. student audience, that's what we're here for. <laughs> so for the first question we sort of want to ask you, um, is what particularly made you want to come to Georgetown? I mean, everyone knows, um, it's pretty common knowledge, that a lot of institutions of higher learning mm-hmm. are fairly liberal-minded. And um, you being a very conservative thinker and, and politician or a political worker, um, you know, what? what well, just walk us through your process in, in wanting to come here. You know, what, what went through your mind?
2: The lenient X, uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I, I talked to Mo uh, Alethi. Uh, who I'd worked with and done some television work with in the past. Uh, and he had me come and do the exit interview uh, for the Secretary of Treasury under Obama. So they interviewed him about what did you do and why was it great and then separately, not the same time, separately <laughs> they had me come and explain what was a disaster right. <laughs> uh, for the nation and, uh, and the world. Uh, and in that conversation, Uh, and they'll they'll do this for Republican-Democrat administrations as they end. Uh, Mo asked if I'd be interested in in this program and I was, uh, particularly because I was invited back in 1994-95 to do the Harvard program and I looked at how Republican and Democrat or even-handed the Harvard program was and it wasn't. It was 9 to 1 Conservative liberals to conservative wow. people. And I said, Look, when you've had two years of something close to 50 50, then I would love to join, but I'm not going to be exhibit A right. on why you don't have any other <laughs> conservatives. Right? Right. right. Oh, Ed Grover, and now we don't need any more. Right. You <laughs> don't want to hold years. us over for, yeah. 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 Uh, so because this was an evenly balanced, much more bipartisan effort than Harvard's. Uh, I felt very comfortable. Plus, I live down the street. For crying out loud, I mean, I, I work in town. I live on Capitol Hill, and so certainly, um, of all the opportunities to work on a campus, this was the. Uh, it was a great one. It was also one that I could get to. I didn't have to fly to Phoenix.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Let's talk a little bit about the students. Um, so, like we said before, you know, there, some institutions of higher learning, a lot of colleges, you know, get that sort of liberal vibe. Um, so what were you sort of looking for in your interactions with students in, in trying to, you know, spread your message and, yeah. and sort of get your thoughts across?
2: Well, I went to Harvard, and we had a lot more college Republicans uh, and conservative activists than you'd expect. Sure. We, we actually mm-hmm. had a college Republican <laughs> chapter, and there wasn't a college Democratic chapter. But you were
1: president of college Republicans back in the no, day, right?
2: No, I don't think so. I was, I was active in college Republicans. My college roommate was chairman of the College Republicans, National, John Brady. Okay. Uh, And then um, I helped build the College Republicans in Massachusetts and and Mm -hmm. nationally. Okay. So I was active with College Republicans, but I I wasn't like president of the Harvard Club or the the, state or national. Uh, But I do think that uh, for anybody who's center right and interested in politics, join College Republicans, be active. It uh, get involved at the state level, go to the national conventions. It is a network that if you are involved in politics at any level, there are lots of people I know who aren't full-time politicos, but I knew them through college Republicans, and mm-hmm. they stay active uh, as uh, Republicans. You learn how to do politics when you're in college, how to be engaged, and you'll just stay with you. It's like learning how to play tennis. Then when somebody says, we're going to play tennis, you say, I'll join because you know you can join. But if you didn't learn how to play tennis, uh, every time somebody said who wants to play tennis, you'd look at your shoes and you wouldn't Mm -hmm. participate. Sure. Uh, There are no tricks. Uh, There's no secret sauce. There's no uh, license you need to have to become active in political life. Uh, Unlike being a dentist (laughs) (laughs) or braiding hair. Uh, So get involved. Get involved early. Realize how easy it is. How there no barriers to entry, uh, and then stay involved.
0: That's a um, that's a really good point you bring up because um, you know something that we have found very interesting, very powerful about you is the fact that you are just um, you're one man. You know, you're one citizen, um, and yet you've built up such a very large and incredibly influential uh, institution um, in ATR. Um, talk to me about your decision to decide to you know. Really go up to politicians, you know, go up to one of the most powerful institutions that there is um, in Congress uh, and say, um, look, this is what I think you should be doing.
2: Sure. Um, I got out of college. I um, came down to D.C. I ran the National Taxpayers Union. I was actually the number two guy in the National Taxpayers Union, and then he moved on, so I became the executive director of the the National Taxpayers Union. National Taxpayers Union still exists, NTU National Taxpayers Union right in the middle of the Proposition 13 tax revolt fight, June 1978. And so I sort of got in and I'm doing telephone calls with Time and Newsweek and so on. Then I'm thinking, Do you guys have any idea how old I am? Uh, <laughs> but when you're representing an issue, there's no such thing as being too young. Uh, when you're representing an issue, uh, doesn't you know, ask, well, who's behind you? or what? You know, that, 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 that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to the issue. The issue is mm-hmm. the issue. The issue is taxes should be lower. Um, what difference does it make how old I am? It, it doesn't, actually. Uh, and Or who agrees with me? The issue stands for itself. So I, I worked with NTU. Then when I came back to D.C., I did a number of things. Worked with the Republican Party. Worked with a group called the Americans for the Reagan Agenda, which was set up to be an outside group lobbying for President Reagan's the national agenda. I worked for a couple of years as a speech writer and as an economist for the Wall for the Chamber of Commerce, US Chamber of Commerce, and then I was invited by the White House to run Americans for Tax Reform. They'd actually set up ATR to be the outside group to support what became the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Mm-hmm. And so I said okay I will do that, that would be good, I'd like to do this. I set it up, they gave me a board, we had a budget, we went to work hmm. during that fight, two-year fight, I created the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which is the pledge that candidates for Congress, Senate, President, now state legislator, governor signed, promising to vote against any and all tax increases, um, any net tax increase. Right. We did it to help pass the Tax Reform Act of '86, which was, had to be hmm. revenue neutral. Reagan said so, but then we got 100 congressmen and 20 senators who said, I'm "Not voting for anything that isn't at least." Revenue mm-hmm. neutral. Tax cut would be fine, but it has to can't be a tax increase. Right. That kept it a tax revenue neutral reform. Mm-hmm. But then we realized what a powerful tool that was mm-hmm. in general. And so even after we passed the Tax Reform Act of 86, I kept the pledge going. And we went from 100 congressmen and 20 senators to, by 94, the 94 Republican win in the House and Senate. We had about 95 percent of all the Republicans in the House and Senate who, who won the guys who won the election. More than that, probably among candidates. Uh, and we uh, and we held that pledge. We we held it. So uh,
0: talk to us about you know uh, sitting in the room with these politicians. You know these congressmen trying to get elected. Um, you know or who are incumbents. Talk to us about you know do you pitch them your pledge or. Um, you know what does it look like when you're actually sitting in the room with them?
2: <clears throat> well, there are two, several levels. The first is I just wrote a letter to everybody in '86, and a hundred Republican congressmen wrote back, said yes, sign the pledge. <laughs> wow. And twenty senators, and then we had a press conference with the leaders. Uh, you know, Gingrich was there and uh, other folks, saying we've all signed the pledge, so this tax reform is not going to turn into a tax increase, mm-hmm. and uh, then more people you know, took the pledge, a lot of candidates, then I talked to all the candidates in 86, urging them to take the pledge, running against people who hadn't taken the pledge. Uh, it works in primaries, it works in the general election. A lot of it's done by the mail. Uh, and then I would go to meetings of Republican congressmen, Republican candidates. I, I write to the Democrats and I, I call them. It very few Democrats uh, were willing to make the pledge not to raise taxes. Didn't expect much there. Going into 85, 84, 85, 94, 95, the Republican sweep, we had two Democratic senators had signed the pledge and five Democratic congressmen. <clears throat> After the 94 election, they all became Republicans. So Democrats take the pledge, either before they're about to lose an election, they realize that they're cooked, so they'll say anything, Or because they're really Republicans, and given a chance, they switch parties. (laughs) Okay. But right now, I don't believe there's a single Democrat incumbent Republican. There's some at the state legislative level. We don't keep track by party affiliation. I recognize some, but not many. Uh, No Democratic governors, no Democratic presidential candidates. The issue that divides the two political parties more than any other today is taxes. They're Democrats who are pro-life. They're Democrats who won't steal your guns. They're Democrats who might actually vote against a wasteful spending program. There's no Democrat who won't vote for a tax hike. There's no Democrat who won't vote against a tax cut. And ditto. I can't. You can't. No Republican will vote for a tax increase at the national level. Some at the state level still do, sadly, but at the national level, no. And they will almost all vote for every tax cut they have the opportunity to vote for. It divides the parties, the two teams sure. have a different approach. That's a
1: very interesting issue you brought up. And, and I like what you said um, when you're making these pitches, you would let the issue stand for itself. You believe you're on solid ground with your logic and your argument, and you'd sort of let that, rather than appearance or, or style, you'd sort of let the issue stand. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, when you did reach out to Democrats— did you have to alter the pitch in any way? Did you have to cater sort of to that audience to sort of use different talking points to get them on board? Or did you just sort of have the same pitch regardless nope, of who you're talking to? same pitch. To? Taxes <laughs> are too
2: high, shouldn't raise them. If The pledge is two things. It is a commitment not to raise taxes, but it is also a unstated commitment to reform government because politicians always spend too much. and even, and if, even if they didn't previous generations have set up entitlements and other spending which gets to be too much pensions what's come due uh, so you have to choose do we raise taxes to pay for yesterday's mistakes and yesterday's outdated commitments mm-hmm. or do we reform government to live within the means of the people and some people look at politics through the lens of the government they talk about income They mean taxes. Citizens think of taxes as outgo. Statists (laughs) view taxes as income. Uh, And so when politicians go, oh, income, other people's money. Uh, If your view, however, is that this is the people's money, we take some of it to provide legitimate government services, ones that are mentioned once or twice in the Constitution, um, those count. Mm The ones that aren't mentioned in the Constitution, you have to wonder whether that's a legitimate function of government, of the American government, maybe a perfectly fine function of the French government or the East German government, but not the American government if it's not listed in the Constitution. So, except for the post office, which is in the Constitution and isn't something the government should run. But (laughs) otherwise, the Constitution is largely correct. So, we simply say to people, do you believe that if the government is overspent, it's your job to reform government and not raise taxes, or do you think you want to raise taxes? And I do sometimes talk to congressmen. If you know, when we get down to the ones that we we think we've got everybody, but somebody you know, I'll, I'll call people and say you know I don't know whether we've been mailing to the wrong address. Uh, <laughs> uh, but haven't to get back to me. Wanted, <laughs> wanted to make sure that you had the pledge, and you'll talk to people. And if and if they say, well, what what if? Something happened and I thought, you might want to raise taxes. I said, then don't sign the pledge. <laughs> you know, But the idea I was going to kick, what if there was a flood and everybody's house was destroyed? Oh, and your response is to screw them with higher taxes? Yeah. That makes sense. Geez <laughs> Louise, if their house was destroyed by the flood, that's the last time you would add <laughs> another tax burden on the American people. You bring up a couple of
0: interesting points there, um, but I do want to make sure um, interest groups at a lot of times get... Kind of viewed by many people in the public, um, fairly or unfairly, um, as kind of a shadowy, you know, fourth branch of government. A lot of people don't really tend to understand them, especially younger audiences like us. Um, so, you know, um, you are the head of probably one of the most influential conservative interest groups there is. How would you describe, you know, one of the most? <laughs> who are these other guys? Are? <laughs> we'll use the superlative just for. <laughs> Uh, excuse me. The in, most. In uh, the age
2: of Trump, everything is the best and the most. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, can't argue with that. How would you describe you know, the, your role um, and the role of interest groups in you know, uh, governing and passing legislation?
2: Well, the, when people talk about interest groups, they mean groups other than the parties, which themselves have become increasingly a cohesive whole. The two parties actually mean something today. Fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, it just there were regional parties. If you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line, you were a Republican. If you were from the South, you were a Democrat. Mm And it didn't tell you whether a governor or congressman or senator or presidential candidate wanted higher taxes or lower taxes or lots of wars or few wars or anything about themselves other than where they were born. During Reagan's lifetime, the two parties sorted themselves out. One has a more limited view of the role of the state. One has a more expansive view of the role of government. And that has been increasingly true, it's become more and more true uh, as old people who used to be liberal republicans pass on and old people who used to be conservative democrats switch parties or pass away <laughs> um, and all the young people are smart enough to realize there are two teams, pick one, um, and and not go check back with what happened in Atlanta with Sherman and everything to decide which side they're on in terms of party uh, affiliation. But they're, so when you talk about interest groups, the NRA, National Rifle Association, I serve on the board of directors of the National Rifle Association, it's a single issue group. They ask all candidates, Republicans and Democrats, please protect the Second Amendment, respect the Second Amendment. That is an issue politics. Um, the NRA doesn't come and lobby congressmen and senators. The NRA tells voters where congressmen and senators stand, and that helps them win elections or not. Um, I don't lobby. I don't ever ask a congressman not to vote for tax increase. I go to I get congressmen to make the commitment when they're running for office or once they've been elected, and say and then share that with the American people. These are the congressmen who will not raise your taxes. These are the congressmen who will raise your taxes. You make your own decision about Mm. you know. Every once in a while, Democrats go. That's not fair. I said. Well, if you think that raising taxes is smart, helpful, constructive, you should brag. I refuse to sign the Americans for Taxpayer Protection. <laughs> I will raise taxes, vote for me. But they know perfectly well that's not what the American people want. They want limited government, or at least a majority of them want a limited government that won't raise their taxes every time they have a brain fart for some new idea that nobody's ever thought of before. Um, and you should all pay for it. My wonderful idea.
0: <laughs>
2: so. Um, These are issue clusters. Don't raise taxes. Leave the Second Amendment alone. The homeschool movement. These are public, OK? I think what bothers people is organized labor will go and ask a candidate for secret commitments. The commitment never to raise taxes is a written commitment. It's online. We make a zillion copies. The candidates themselves make blow-up copies and put on the walls of their offices. You know, this is who I am, I'm not raising taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, this is a very, very public comment. Everybody knows they've made the pledge or that they haven't made the pledge. Labor unions come and say, I want you to vote for these five bills. Not in public, in private. The commitment's private. Um, Cash trade changes hands. I don't write checks to politicians. I highlight their position on taxes, <laughs> and it helps them win an election or it doesn't help them win an election. Um, and I think that's very constructive. I think secret pledges are, are corruption, and I think paying people for their positions is corruption. Uh, paying them for their positions is corruption. But public financial support for pub, in, in within public commitments is perfectly is, is the way politics should work it's the secret pledges that are a problem and both the environmentalists and the labor unions get all sorts of secret pledges from people um, that they then hold them to but people don't know that
1: uh, so if you had to say one or more I, i'm i've, I've gut feeling what your answer is going to be if you had, a, if, you had a, if you had to say which way is more effective you know getting a politician to sign a public pledge you know essentially getting them to wager votes uh, and, and try to earn votes in that sense versus you know, the politician who will make a secret pledge to a group in um, tra- horse trading and things like that. W- which way is more effective? Which is a better way to organize our civil society?
2: It depends what kind of issue you have. I mean, to, for the organization of all society, it's better to have public commitments when you run for office. This is what I will and won't do. Uh, you should be honest about it and open about it. You can't mandate politicians be honest. Those kind of laws don't work. Um, but uh, it really depends on your issue. If you have a popular issue, you can say, please just publicly state your position. Um, that's all I want you to do. Publicly say, well, raise your taxes. That's all I want you to do. And, and, and keep the commitment. But you keep the commitment because you made it, because you got elected, and you know it's what your constituents want. If I want, Congress to continue the sugar subsidy program, I can't ask you, I can't go to a majority of the House and Senate and say, please stand up and say, voters, I will steal (laughs) your money and give it to the sugar industry. That's what I will do Mm -hmm. Um, because you lose the election. What you can do is get a $5,000 check. From them, and then quietly vote for the sugar House. <laughs> um, so, if you're an organ, if you're a, a labor union boss, and you want the Davis Bacon Act, which is a corrupt act, which keeps prices too high, uh, and means we have a third fewer roads than we should have in the country, given what we paid for, um, you do that privately, secretly. You cut that deal. You give them cash. They make the commitment. You never ask them to stand up and say. And I will loot the taxpayers and give <laughs> the money to Fred here. Um, so if you have an honorable position, you want it to be public. If you have a dishonorable position, you want it to be private.
1: Sure, and uh, we've talked a little bit about you know how these groups operate and you know their tactics. Um, but what happens when alliances form between interest groups? You know, you, we're seeing an example now um, with the new healthcare bill that's been introduced. You know, there's conservative groups aligning. Um, so, what do those groups, how do those alliances form? What do they look like? How do they you know, sort of coordinate their tactics to, to work for a, a shared accomplished goal?
2: Well, what we do through Americans for Tax Uh 24 years ago, we set up a meeting in D.C., uh, 1993, uh, 24 years ago. Uh, and we started with about 20 people around the table. And our goal was to slow down and stop. The Clinton agenda, which we did quite successfully, uh, and then we kept it going, and built a broad coalition. And today, it's between 150 and 180 people who attend the meeting. Today, we had a meeting; 170 people. Wow. Um, 27 presented for three minutes each, in on what they're doing. Okay. Who's in the room? All the groups are in the room who represent the modern Reagan Republican Party, meaning the Leave Us Alone Coalition. Everybody's in the room because on the issue that moves their vote, what they want from the government is to be left alone. Taxpayers, don't steal my money. Gun owners, leave my Second Amendment rights alone. Homeschoolers, let me run my kid's life. The various communities of faith, let me practice my faith. Uh, Businessmen and women, leave my business and professional life alone. Everybody around the table wants to be left alone on their boat moving issue. And their are new ones, vapors. I want to be able to vape. I don't want prohibition, which Obama and Hillary Clinton put into effect. In, in a couple of years, 98% of all vaping products will be illegal, unless the FDA under Trump undoes that, which it will now. But if Hillary had won, there'd be 10 million Americans living in, in a society with vaping prohibition, like prohibition from the 1920s, Sure, um, which was stupid then and remains stupid now. <laughs> So that's the, the, the right of center, center right coalition, a group of people who all agree because why? We want a limited government that leaves us alone. Why? For different reasons. Some guy wants to go to church all day, some guy wants to make money all day, some guy wants to funnel his guns all day. They, whatever the reason that matters to you that you want to be left alone, that's why you're in. But you vote for the same candidate because he says, I'm going to leave your kids alone. Your kids' schooling alone, your house alone, your business alone, your property alone, your professional life alone, uh, your faith alone, um, and I'm going to run a government that's limited and not mess with you. That's what I want. Okay, so that's how coalitions work. They have to be. And this is a permanent coalition for all issues and all candidates. Um, then there are tactical issues where I work with the ACLU on a law to legalize owning a knife in New York. couple months ago we got both houses of the legislature in New York pass a law legalizing knife ownership because tens of thousands of kids have been arrested and charged with felony stuff out of New York City alone because they have a knife in their pocket. have some stupid law from 1958 when everybody watched West Side Story (laughs) and decided they had to pass a law against Switchway. (laughs) Um, And that's a tactical uh, uh, agreement. ACLU agrees, I agree, different reasons perhaps, but we both agree knives should be legal Young people shouldn't be. Nobody should be arrested for having a knife in their pocket. It's a tool for crying out loud, um, or it's, it's a weapon. It's your own business if you want a weapon. You know, it, it, that's not the government's business. So, um, so we work together on that. That's a tactical, one-time. It could be one-time. I work with the ACU often on one-time issues, but we don't house together and you know work on all the issues mm-hmm. of the day, uh, the way we do with some other center-right groups where we just. A, know that we're always in the same zone but many times the ACLU and Americans for tax Reform are in the same place on civil liberties issues
0: yeah uh, so uh, switching gears a little bit um, Trump is about to release his budget um, and obviously the presidential budget is um, a big deal and something that quite a few people are going to talk about a lot of times because it is a wish list of what the president wants to get done. Mm -hmm. Um, But there have been quite a few budget battles that have gone through Congress in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, And we kind of wanted to know, uh, you know, what how have you been involved in those battles? And how does an interest group coordinate with, you know, congressmen uh, to make sure that their interests are best served in budget battles?
2: Sure. Step one, we draw a line in the sand and work to make sure there's no tax increase involved. Yeah. Um, no Republican voted for a tax increase during the entire Obama years. Uh, And he got a couple tax increases through. But but that was only with D votes. Very important. The reason why the Republicans were able to smash Obama's control of the House and then the Senate was he made all the Ds vote for tax increases and massive spending and massive regulation. And there weren't any Republican fingerprints on those bills. Mm. If they had been bipartisan efforts, it would have been very hard to explain to the American people why you have to punish the Democrats and elect the Republicans if the Republicans, even if only if a few of the Republicans had been holding hands with Obama and Harry Reid when they did it, that it was an all-democratic horror show allowed you to say, them, they did it, run them out of town, and people did. So um, step one, draw a line in the sand of in tax increase. Step two, look for your, your, what are the opportunities? Lay the groundwork for certain reforms. We have laid the groundwork for reducing the number of civilian employees in the Pentagon. We have laid the groundwork now for auditing the Pentagon. We have laid the groundwork for eliminating a lot of the HUD money which goes to fund democratic political machines in cities. Um, We have made the argument against throwing more money at the UN. We've made the argument against some foreign aid excesses. Um, And so now is the time when you have the Republican president to sign the bills. We've also made the argument that we need to reform the entitlement programs. Um, so you make the argument when you're not in power and then to the American people and to your congressman senators so that they feel comfortable. Uh, and then you go to the American people when you win an election say, told you we were going to do this, now we're going to do it. Watch us do it and then vote for us again. So you campaign in order to govern. You don't tell people what you're going to do, you don't have any right expect them to be happy when you do it. You, you can't go, I win, surprise. <laughs> um, you have to go, I win. I'm going to do what I said I do. Watch me do what I said I do now. Here's what I'm going to do next. You can trust that I will because that's what I did the last time. Then you elect me again. Then I do what I said I was going to do. And you keep doing that and, and, and until you get your program through.
1: So tactically, it looks like, it, especially when you don't have the president or, or the majority of Congress on your side, it seems like you're biding your time and just sort of laying that foundation and, and in the hopes that someday there's this wave that carries you into power.
2: A little, but it's not all that. First of all, we won some tremendous victories against uh, Obama while he was the sitting president. Uh, we got the sequester, a real spending cap, which dropped an, eventually $2 trillion out of the budget. Um, from what he planned to spend um, and we beat him there because we kept saying we're never raising taxes, we're never raising taxes, we're never raising taxes mm-hmm. and he finally accepted the sequester. Hoping we wouldn't take it seriously but we did. Um, we got 85 percent of the Bush tax cuts made permanent. He could have made none of them permanent just by crossing his arms and doing nothing. They would have disappeared. Five tri- There's a $5 trillion dollar tax increase going to happen unless he signed the continuing re-establishment, because they ended the sure. re-establishment of uh, the tax cuts. He gave us 85% of the Bush tax cuts made permanent. No reason in the world he should have done that from his perspective. <laughs> um, but, so the Republicans governed very well in opposition. We got a lot of things you could never have gotten. I would have thought the president would never be stupid enough to <laughs> sign that bill, but they were. Um, Partly because we had a united front, and we just beat him. We just beat him in the middle of his presidency. So he's president for two years. And then after that, he was a caretaker, and he played a lot of golf. Um, There was six years of nothing except executive orders, and we will undo those six years of executive orders in the next two years.
1: Sure. Uh, So along those lines, uh, so back in June of 2016, uh, in the heat of the election, you said that President, or uh, I guess candidate Trump at the time, had the potential to be the most fiscally conservative president. Do you still think that President Trump, uh, when he unveils his budget, uh, will prove himself to be a true fiscal conservative?
2: Sure. Um, it, one, he has this opportunity because there's a Republican House and Senate. If Trump was president, but you had a Democratic House and Senate, um, his desire to cut a deal, his desire to have a budget, would be pulled like gravity in the wrong, in the wrong direction. Uh, with If Trump, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell sit in a room, come to an agreement, I have a hard time believing that I, or the average American taxpayer, will be disappointed <laughs> with what the three of those guys, and, and their constituents, meaning the House, whole House, whole Senate, right. um, do, I'll be happy, I'll be very happy, um, as will the average taxpayer, because they're not raising your taxes, they're gonna reduce taxes, they're not gonna spend a bunch of money, stupid, well, They'll spend a whole bunch of money stupidly. <laughs> much less money stupidly than any other president knows of sure. guy. Um can't try too much in, in 24 hours. But what you will have uh with Trump is a commitment to get rid of the Obamacare entitlement and to move towards reforming health care. Not it's not getting rid of Obamacare doesn't make things right. It brings you back to a point eight years ago where things sucked so bad in terms of healthcare that Obamacare sounded reasonable to some people. Um, It was worse than what we had, but people wanted something different than what we had, as did I. But then you need to add undo Obamacare and then reform the nonsense that was there before, okay? We're not reforming the mess of Obamacare, we're eliminating the mess of Obamacare and reforming the mess from before Obamacare. Because we've had 60 years of the government taking over more and more of healthcare and having wage and price controls and government spending and government controls, and of course it's a mess. Didn't work in Bulgaria or East Germany. Why do you think it would work here in healthcare? Um, so that's he's working on that. His tax cut is a thing of beauty. Uh, will be very, very pro-growth. We get that tax cut passed this year. Uh, the growth in 12, in 18, and 20 will be phenomenal. It'll be Reagan levels of growth. Uh, And the deregulation he's put forward Uh, at the FCC, the FTC, the FERC, FDA. I mean, you're going to see the rollback of of 16 years of stupid, eight years of Obama and eight years of Bush. And Bush was not a deregulator. Bush, unfortunately, passed massive regulations um, and allowed his bureaucracies to pass massive regulations. Um, We have 18 years of nonsense to roll back probably 24, because you include the Clinton years too. Um, And you have have to get back to Reagan before the explosion in regulation started up again. Bush, senior, um, had a massive, significant increase, massive and significant increase in regulatory burden, whereas Reagan spent eight years holding it back. And Bush had no idea how much hard work it is to hold back the tide of a bureaucracy that wants to regulate. Bush thought Reagan wasn't working or something, right? He didn't mm-hmm. understand. This was constant effort to get to zero movement, right? Sure. And he stepped away and got swept away by his own incompetence. He allowed the bureaucracy to take over his presidency and then get himself thrown out of office because he raised taxes and regulated the economy.
1: Sure. Uh, so we're just going to start closing down, uh, but we want to add uh, our, our very favorite, one of our favorite segments, uh, student question of the day. We sort okay. of crowdsource a question from around campus, um, and uh, this is actually coming from a good friend of ours, Jack Lynch. He's in the college uh, class of twenty eighteen, government major, journalism minor. Uh, he'd like to know what is one example of a very effective interest group that advocates for a position you disagree with, and what tactics uh, do they employ that makes them so successful.
2: Um organized labor is very powerful um, there are seven million public sector employees teachers government workers who pay dues uh, about four to, four and a half five billion dollars in dues um, in many states it's compulsory union dues um, so they just take the money uh, and when you have that much money it's very easy to be powerful politically So what makes organized labor a powerful political force is its ability to extract union dues through the power of the government, um, and then spends that money on political organizing, not just campaign contributions, that's tip of the iceberg for them, (laughs) but uh, billions and billions every year on politics.
0: Okay, Uh, so we have uh, a couple more questions for you, but this is a new segment that we're having on Fly on the Wall. Uh, We're calling it the lightning round. Okay. okay, so uh, we're going to ask you a couple of questions, and just, you know, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay, so first question. Um, is Paul Ryan your
2: favorite ATR conservative? He's one of them. He's a great He's a great conservative for taxpayers.
1: Who is the most accessible uh, but also influential politician on Capitol Hill?
2: Uh, certainly Paul Ryan. I think Mitch McConnell. Uh, I like Jeff Flake.
0: Most fiscally conservative Democrat? At the national level.
2: Oh, uh, fiscally conservative Democrat at the national level, like an elected office? Yeah, Are, are they endangered? <laughs> <laughs> not, not many? I can't think of one. Oh, okay. man. Harry Birdie's dead. But, uh,
0: <laughs> okay, outside of your pledge, uh, mm-hmm. what is the one thing you always bring to meetings with elected officials?
2: Uh, a map of the United States that shows which states are run by Republicans and Democrats. There are 25 red states, six blue states. It allows you to see in one clear map the overwhelming dominance of the modern Republican Party at the state level.
1: <laughs> uh, and final question, yes or no, should we scrap the two-party system?
2: No, of course not. Um, it's what we've got. There are only, on the central issue of the day, there are only two positions anyway. Should the yeah. government get bigger or smaller? Should it be more powerful or less powerful? Take more of your money, take less of it. <laughs> there are only two positions. What would, what would you do with a third or fourth party? You know, the, the, the what parties, what would they stand for? <laughs> sure. Grover, thank
0: you so much for your time. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast with us.
1: You have clarified a lot of things that uh, I think are confusing to the average college student. So we really, really appreciate you coming here and, uh, and talking with us and, and telling us some of your jokes. I know it's not all of your top stand-up material, but uh, you certainly welcome. made us laugh.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, enjoy the opportunity.
0: Great. Thanks thank you. So
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Hit us up on Twitter, at FlyOnTheWallPod. Hit us up on Instagram, at FlyOnTheWallPod. Shoot us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, look for our new Facebook page. We'll be launching soon.
0: Yeah, guys, we're going to start crowdsourcing questions on Twitter, so please check that out. Uh, Ask a question. We'll be announcing uh, the guest. And then look them up, check them out. And then let us know if you would like to ask a question.
1: Yeah, we would love to hear from you, and uh, we want to know how to make this thing better. So always feel free to reach out with your comments. Perfect. Thanks so much,
0: guys.
1: I'm not going to say something stupid like Aloha this time, but this is Aaron and Christian signing off.